reeling from all the terrible news but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they'd do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollack. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you stop doom scrolling and start doing. I am here with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hi, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How is your August going? It would be going better if I had billionaire friends to send me on luxury vacations. How about you? Too true. I am having trouble even finding swimming pools half the time. It's like, this is not the summer I was promised by pop culture. (laughs) In any case, we come here to talk about one of the least summary issues of our (laughs) lifetimes. We have Brett Edkins, who is the Managing Director of Policy and Political Affairs at Stand Up America, to talk to us a little bit about the issue that really inspired this podcast from the beginning, which is court reform. Brett, thanks so much for joining us. And can you, as is our traditional first question, tell us a little bit about how you came to this issue. Did you grow up in like an activist household? What was your background when it came to politics and political action? Well, thanks for having me. First off, it's just really nice to be here. You know, well, I I grew up outside of Syracuse in central New York. Uh, My parents were not political. My parents uh, came from large Irish, Italian, Catholic families. Uh, They didn't have a lot growing up with six and eight kids in those families. You can imagine my dad's family uh, were dairy farmers and helped run a grocery store. My mom's dad was a traveling salesman. And they married young and and worked their way up and moved us to a good public school district. And because of them, I was able to be the first person in my family to go to a four-year college. And they they instilled in me pretty early that you have a responsibility, not just to yourself, but to care for the people around you, to have empathy, to try to make their lives better, especially those who aren't as lucky or who had opportunities that just didn't break their way. It was a very Catholic, there but for the grace of God go I mentality. And that's really how why I'm a liberal, why I started to care about issues and politics. Giving ordinary folks a fair shot and helping other people is really personal to me. And uh, growing up, I loved history. I loved to debate the issues. And in college, I did a, you know, some volunteering on campaigns and things, but I had never ran a campaign and I ran a, a local city council race in college. Everyone told me it was absolutely crazy. We were running to defeat an incumbent. It was going to be tough, uh, but we just organized, 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 kept our eye on that win number uh, and we won. And after that, I was, I was hooked. Uh, so, you know, one piece of advice that I would give any listeners to your podcast is if you're trying to get involved in politics, you don't have to look much farther than the city or the town that you live in. There's politics everywhere. There are good candidates running everywhere who want to make people's lives better. So get to know them, help them out, volunteer, and take on as much responsibility as you can to build those skills and those connections and experience that way. So I saw that you went to law school. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about 
Law school might seem a little bit mysterious to people who don't go, but the ways that uh, having a legal training can help in all sorts of different ways when you're thinking about advocacy and activism and and maybe the ways it doesn't help. Sure. I mean, law school, a lot of people do kind of default to law school because they're not exactly sure what to do next on their career. And one piece of advice that I completely ignored uh, when I was in D.C., I, I worked in foreign policy for two years out of undergrad. And someone said, don't go to law school, just keep working in politics. And you'll in three years, you'll get to where you wanted to go in those three years you're spending on law school anyway. That's good advice if you know exactly where you want to be in politics and you can just keep working your way up. Uh, It is not for everyone. And you end up with a lot of debt. And in this environment, that's not to be taken on lightly. But if you do manage to go through law school and can afford it uh, and get help from people to afford it, It gives you a unique perspective on all the policies and the role of the courts and the role that lawyers have in in all of these public policy debates. You can read the legislation that's being considered. You can read the case law that is deciding whether the the legislation is constitutional or not, or how the agency interpreted the constitution. And you actually understand it. I mean, a legal education gives you a very exacting, exacting is a nice way of saying you know, really anal retentive and uh, particular view of policy, but it certainly gives you an insight into everything that's going on in politics that's a little bit more in depth than you can get just from reading a lot of news and even reading the policy briefs from some organizations. So it's also fun if you like reading cases. Uh, you read a lot of cases and uh, it, it is fun. I really did love law school, but it does not set you up for oh, you're going to do the political thing right afterwards unless you know going in. And it took me a while afterwards to steer my way back to real public policy and and public service type work. I also want want to talk a little bit about the thing we came out here to talk about, which is court reform. But I also... In sort of just connecting back to what you were just talking about, I think like one of the things that I know a lot of lawyers who are practicing right now who... I think feel a little bit like hamstrung by the by their career. They feel like they're supposed to sort of participate in politics in a fairly unbiased manner because that's kind of part of the training that they got. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about just knowing kind of both sides of this issue and working on an issue that really involves the law very specifically, like how practicing lawyers or what actions are available to practicing lawyers? How can practicing lawyers sort of like impact policy without compromising their careers in whatever, you know, especially if they're working in law that involves some of the issues that, you know, or well, obviously they all involve the courts, I guess, but, you know, in, in, that, are, that are connected to some of the issues that are, that they may be looking to seek change on. Yeah, we absolutely. We hear this a lot. I mean, if for organizations too, that are litigating before, say, the Supreme Court, it's hard for them to then say, oh, we should really reform the Supreme Court. They think it puts them in an awkward position in front of the Supreme Court. To that, I would say this Supreme Court has an ideology, and they are going to determine their cases based on that ideology, not based on what you say outside the courtroom in your your, your personal life or your professional political life. For lawyers out there, I think there's a lot that they can do. One, join and connect with groups that are focused on democracy reform from a legal lens. A lot of the partners that we work with at Stand Up America uh, are have a legal lens or work with lawyers, groups like States United Democracy Center, uh, Protect Democracy, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, and Lawyers Defending American Democracy. 
for great organizations that people should look up, not only provide a community among lawyers and legal experts interested in reform, but also provide spaces where you can use your skills to push for reform. I know some of the things that some of these orgs are doing are are taking complaints and ethics complaints to American Bar Association chapters in particular states where um, you know some of the people who collaborated with Donald Trump to try to overturn the 2020 election, these lawyers still have law licenses, even though they violated their oaths as lawyers, they violated their oaths to defend the Constitution and tried to overturn a democratic election. A lot of these cases are moving forward through uh, you know the professional establishment that is there to license and approve lawyers in all of these places, Giuliani in DC and Eastman and in California, get involved in those cases, help them. That, that is a tremendous amount of work that has to go into providing like exhibits and briefing to these ABA review panels to prove and show these people should not be licensed to practice law in America. They absolutely should not be in that. That work takes a lot of time. So get involved that way. It, also, if you believe strongly in, in certain issues, do pro bono litigation. It was uh, how I stayed sane working in law firms. I would highly encourage it for any litigators out there who uh, or corporate attorneys. You know, 99% of the cases don't make it to the radical conservative Supreme Court. So you still have a good shot at the lower levels. And Joe Biden is putting really good people on the bench. So try to litigate. Um, and lastly, one of the best things lawyers can do is have the courage to speak out. We need more lawyers out there publicly talking about the need for court reform. Um, talk about what the Supreme Court is doing to our freedoms. Talk about the long history of court reform in our country. There is a very long history of it. But try to help us normalize this conversation again. It has not come up enough. There is a perception among mainstream Democrats that this is too far left. It is not. Uh, and we need more people. Uh, who are we willing to say, I practice law, I've worked in this field for a long time, the courts have clearly gone uh, off the rails, we need some pretty fundamental reforms like expanding the lower courts, so that we have more judges, so we have more diversity on the bench, so that we can clear the backlog of cases so people aren't waiting years and years and years to get justice. Uh, and so we can have some more balance on the Supreme Court and on some of the, the circuit courts of appeals. You said that the court decides essentially what the Supreme Court decides what cases it's going to take. And I think maybe if we could demystify a little bit how things get to the Supreme Court, like what are the cases that are going to make it there? What's this process look like? Because, you know, it seems like sometimes the president will want to do something and that goes straight to the Supreme Court, but lots of other things are obviously working their way up. So what are the ways that cases actually get there? What, what does this process look like? Sure. And it has gotten a little bit more confusing than when I took federal courts and you know appeals back in the day. Normally, a case gets to the Supreme Court because circuit courts of appeal, which divvy up the country into different districts, have conflicting rulings. You don't want the law, the same law being interpreted in California differently than it's being interpreted in Florida. So often the Supreme Court will step in to stop that divide so that there's uniformity in law across the country. What we're starting to see now is you get radical activist judges at the district level who issue a preliminary injunction. They stop a policy before it's even started into effect. They might halt Joe Biden's student loan policy, or they might uh, issue a nationwide injunction on you know, a border policy. A lot of issues like this have been popping up, and they've 
these judges aren't just applying their rulings in their districts, they're applying them na- nationally. So emergency appeals go straight up to the Supreme Court and in, in a really unprecedented fashion in the shadow docket, the court has been taking these cases and upholding these preliminary injunctions or allowing the regular court's appeals process to proceed. And that's that's kind of a change right now uh, where it should take a long time to get to the Supreme Court, but we're suddenly starting to see a lot more of these radical opinions, often from a single conservative judge appointed by Trump in Texas, where conservative litigators are choosing his district to bring cases so that they can get on the rocket docket and get a nationwide preliminary injunction and hopefully change policy even while the appeals process goes through over the course of several years. Considering all of the confusion that lay folks like ourselves have about how the court process works, can we just walk through some of the court reform strategies that people can be organizing around and, you know, what what they what they could entail in terms of, you know, regular people's participation in them, how they can support efforts? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of great ideas out there. First, there's term limits is often discussed about we should have a Supreme Court where people are serving about 18 years is the regular proposal. Every president under this proposal would be able to choose two Supreme Court justices. And you know, after 18 years, they would step down or they would take senior status and not participate in most cases. The benefits of this would that would be that it would depoliticize the nomination process because every president, they would get elected and everyone would know and assume they will get two seats on the court. Uh, Each nomination would not be treated like all-out war. And you wouldn't have presidents like Donald Trump, who served four years, got three justices. Obama served eight, only got two. Uh, That kind of disproportion is part of why we have a court that's so radically out of step with the American people. Trouble with term limits is that it's never been tested. The constitutionality of it has never been tested. We also need a code of ethics. This is a reform that is making its way through the Senate Judiciary Committee now. Uh, There's a bill called uh, the Supreme Court Ethics Recusal and Transparency Act that would, among other things, impose a code of ethics on the Supreme Court. Remarkably, the highest court in the country is the only court without a code of ethics. All the other federal judges in the country have to abide by a code of ethics and ethics behavior. And because the Supreme Court cannot seem to police itself, we see the kind of radical behavior we're seeing from Justice Thomas and and Alito and some others. We also need lower court expansion. Donald Trump appointed 200 judges in four years. Mitch McConnell pushed them through very quickly. 85% of Trump's nominees to the courts were white. 76% of them were men. This is not a diverse bench that he created. Joe Biden and, and Dick Durbin and the leaders on the Senate Judiciary Committee are trying to fill every vacancy. Uh, but even if they do, it's been 40 some years since 1978 when we last did a major expansion of the district courts and the appeals courts. We need more seats on the lower courts. And finally, we need uh, to expand the Supreme Court. And if people want to get involved in the, these fights specifically, uh, standupamerica.com has a lot of resources and tools you can use. People can take out your phone. You can text the word court to 63033. We will automatically send you a click to email tool that lets you find if your rep is co-sponsoring the bill to expand the Supreme Court and send them an email telling them they should get on board the bill. Um, But there's a lot of tools on standupamerica.com for you to get involved. 
So let's talk about Supreme Court expansion then. Uh, you know, what? why are we at nine? Uh, you know, what What could expansion look like? Are we talking 11? Are we talking 50? You know, what, what sorts of things have been thrown around? What could we end up at? Sure. The framers established the Supreme Court in the Constitution, but they left the particulars to Congress, including the size of the court and the scope of its ju- jurisdiction. It does not take a constitutional amendment to change the size of the Supreme Court. In fact, Congress has changed the size of court seven times in our history. When the court first convened in 1790, there were six justices. Uh, After 1800, there were five. In the midst of the Civil War, the court was expanded to 10 uh, to help Lincoln end the Civil War and appoint more anti-slavery Republicans to the court. In 2016, just a few years ago, we had eight on the Supreme Court for over a year because Mitch McConnell chose not to let Barack Obama replace Justice Scalia, and we had eight justices for over a year. The last two presidents to expand the court were Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. And there's also, there was an attempt by Franklin Delano Roosevelt to expand the Supreme Court when they were striking down New Deal programs. And there's a myth that has been going around ever since that the court packing plan was a disaster that that is why we should not try to expand the court again. It was an electoral disaster for Democrats. Couldn't be further from the truth. Two months after FDR proposed expanding the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court changed its entire jurisprudence on New Deal policies. It's the switch in time that saved nine. That's what people would normally call it. Suddenly, they were upholding minimum wage laws, worker safety laws, child labor laws, all things that they hated two months earlier. The political pressure from FDR changed the Supreme Court's jurisprudence and saved the New Deal. And then he went on to win the presidency in 1940 and 1944. So not a political disaster. The current bill under discussion, sorry to finally circle around to your question, the Judiciary Act that's now before Congress would expand the Supreme Court from 9 to 13, which coincidentally is the number of circuit courts we have in the country. Traditionally, the number of justices on the Supreme Court matched the number of circuit courts of appeal we had. Uh, today, they don't match. And so some justices have to jostle and uh, you know work on two different circuits of, uh, courts of appeal at any given time. If you had 13, they could all manage one court of appeals and the appeals from that, that section of the country. And it would bring the court back into balance, uh, restoring balance after it's been so far out of whack and the Republicans and Mitch McConnell stole two seats uh, under Donald Trump and and Barack Obama. I wanted to talk a little bit about the question that I actually asked at the panel that I saw you on, which was about, you know, I think we we sort of think of the legal system and the courts as this very sort of like decorum filled, solemn place. And, and I think one of the things that has shocked me the most about this period in the courts is a lot of my friends who are lawyers who work in like very law-y, you know, jobs that I don't actually like hearing about very much because they sound boring, have been (laughs) suggesting a lot of like kind of wacky resistant strategies in response to this sort of bizarre break in decorum at the court. And, you know, I asked specifically about, I've heard, you know, a, a good friend of mine who, you know, comes out of the kind of white shoe DC world talk about like legislation that would change the funding practices for the Supreme Court. You know, if if you want to have an originalist interpretation of the Constitution, the Constitution doesn't 
require air conditioning be in the Supreme Court. It doesn't necessarily, you know, guarantee everyone computers. Like there's there's sort of like, I think, you know, these are obviously meant as sort of like, you know, a funnier kind of strategies meant to kind of point out some of the idiosyncrasies of the the way that the court is interpreting legal doctrine at the moment. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the place for that conversation and, you know, how we can make use of you know, just for the for the regular non-court <laughs> obsessed folks out there, like how we can make use of some of these quirkier, funnier, you know, resistant strategies and where they could be or won't be effective, like what you sort of think about pursuing, you know, some of these more out of the box ideas. Right. I think in this current situation, everything should be on the table. We have a Supreme Court that is gutting unions. They've taken away Roe v. Wade and abortion rights from everyone. They are stripping the Voting Rights Act. They are making it impossible to tackle the climate crisis. And they are allowing guns to run rampant in our schools and endangering our kids and our families. So every reform option has to be on the table, including some of these more off-the-wall ideas that your friends are floating. And they're not all that crazy. Like I said, the Constitution says there has to be a Supreme Court, but Beyond that, a lot of the particulars are up to Congress, and it's about time that Congress remembered it's a co-equal branch of government. It's Article 1 in the Constitution is Congress. Article 3 is the Supreme Court. Congress is the most important branch. They're the representatives of the people, and the people want reproductive freedom. They want gun common sense, gun gun violence protections. They want all of these things, and the court is the one taking them away. So among them, appropriations, Congress sets the budget of the Supreme Court. So like you said, if Congress wants to uh, eliminate the budget for Supreme Court air conditioning, they could probably do that. That's a little extreme. Uh, I don't think there is a line item for AC and windows, but there is a line item for Supreme Court security and for maintenance of that building and their staff and their clerks and all the people that help them function as an institution. That could be contingent and should be contingent on them doing their jobs and upholding the most basic ethics standards. No member of Congress would be taking billionaires' travel trips like Justice Thomas's. They couldn't. It's illegal. But Justice Thomas is out there doing it. So there have been some proposals. I know Senator Van Hollen in Maryland and others have considered tying extra court security budget to their adoption of a code of ethics and they should be considering those options pretty strongly. And it's a good way to have leverage on the court. They could also consider other kinds of reforms like jurisdiction stripping. Uh, The court has to hear cases under the constitution. They have to hear certain cases. If there is a challenge or disagreement between states, if there's a case against the United States of America from a foreign power, a case involving ambassadors, a case involving maritime law. That stuff falls under their original jurisdiction. They get to hear those cases. But in a lot of cases, the court has jurisdiction to hear cases that are appealed from lower courts because Congress gave them that right. Congress could take that away. They could also change the vote of how many votes on the Supreme Court it takes to overturn an act of Congress. This is another proposal that's out there. Right now, a simple majority on the Supreme Court can strike down a law of Congress as unconstitutional. Uh, They're doing this with the Voting Rights Act. Five of them don't like it. Uh, Now it's six because the Supreme Court has become so radically far right. But you could up that and say, nope, you need seven of nine votes to overturn an act of Congress as unconstitutional. So I think there's a lot of ideas out there. They should all be considered. And 
All of that is because the strategy right now is to increase the public pressure and political pressure on the court so that they understand how out of step they are with the American people and how corrupt they are. And maybe we get all the reforms we want, or maybe we get some compromise, but we're never going to get any reform if we don't push and push on all of these types of ideas and move them forward. I want to ask a little bit about the ethics reform that is needed. So, you know, there's been a lot of articles, especially about Clarence Thomas and all the the huge gifts he's gotten from billionaires. Can we talk a little bit about why that's important? You know, what what is it that can be affected if Clarence Thomas is getting gifts from somebody, if Sam Alito is being flown on a plane somewhere? You know, what what difference does that make in the courts and why why should we care? The big question. Let's just take Harlan Crow as the best example. Harlan Crow has been fetting Clarence Thomas for 20 years. Clarence Thomas has been accepting and hiding from the American people luxury vacations that make White Lotus look like a La Quinta. Gifted him nearly every year, yacht trips worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, going to Crow's East Texas Ranch, uh, yacht trips to New Zealand and the Greek Islands, a nine-day Indonesian yacht trip uh, to tour the volcanic archipelago on a 162-foot yacht with butlers and private chefs, a trip that was worth over half a million dollars. (laughs) The average annual income in America for most people is something like 45, 60,000 in that range. It's just mind-boggling how quickly he burned through money and he doesn't seem to care and he hides it from people. Now, the people who attend these are not just Harlan Crow and the Thomas family. CEOs go on these trips with them, executives, donors, think tank leaders on the conservative side of the aisle. The other three billionaires who we recently learned have been giving Clarence Thomas trips And special favors include David Sokol, who's a top executive at a private equity firm, Berkshire Hathaway, Wayne Hedzwenga, who owned Blockbuster and owned the Miami Dolphins, an oil baron named Tony Novelli. In some of these cases, some of these individuals have had cases before the court. And in other cases, their business interests are clearly implicated. Just take the court's labor jurisprudence. This court has made it very difficult for union organizers to form a union and to collectively bargain for higher wages, better conditions. Harlan Crow, his dad was once the largest landowner in America. When you make it harder for unions to organize, you are directly benefiting Harlan Crow's bottom line, Novelli's bottom line, Sokol's bottom line, Hezuega's bottom line, because they are not on the side of the workers. And it is just absolutely beyond belief that on none of these trips was business discussed with Clarence Thomas. He just doesn't talk about his job. You're talking about 38 destination vacations, 26 private jet flights, 12 VIP trips to sporting events, eight helicopter rides, two stays at luxury vacations in Florida and Jamaica. Clearly, their interests come up. They talk about their lives, their beliefs, their politics. This is influence peddling at the highest level of our government, and it's only been disclosed because of good reporting. Thomas has tried to hide this for decades. I think it can be sort of this, this feels like such a big issue with like such big implications. I want to talk a little bit about some smaller success metrics that people can look out for as we sort of pursue court reform. So like there's the kind of big change that's like, we could have 
a different number of people on the Supreme Court or like, you know, term limits or any of the things that you suggested. But what are some of the smaller success metrics that can let people know, you know, that our, the, the public pressure is working or that they can apply public pressure towards that can kind of help move the needle? That's a really tough question. Like I said on FDR's court packing plan, sometimes the public pressure alone can force the Supreme Court to change. In just our lifetimes, we've seen that happening. We remember all the back backroom reporting that we got about Obamacare when John Roberts suddenly went from very clearly opposing Obamacare, and he was going to be the fifth vote to strike it down, to siding with the court's liberals to save it, in part because I think he feared the overwhelming backlash against the court for interfering in such a political issue and coming down so firmly against the president's signature policy issue. And John Roberts continues to show that kind of political instinct that he cares about the institutional health and integrity of the court. And some of his other colleagues seem to sometimes also be moderating their ideological positions because they are worried about the public backlash. You know, Justice Alito is pretty much alone in coming out swinging publicly where he seems to relish getting involved in politics and attacking his political enemies in a way that is really inappropriate for anybody wearing a black robe on the bench. Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett seem to be trying to be more like John Roberts, caring a little bit more about the long-term institutional health of the court. And the more people out there questioning the court's legitimacy, the more lawyers who do that, and the more litigators who are out there vocally showing shock at where this court is the more that helps put pressure on the court to moderate itself and have conversations. They they have conversations behind closed doors about cases, about their court, about their influence. At the end of the day, the court's influence depends entirely on the public acceptance of their rulings. They don't have a police force. They instead get their power because the executive branch and Congress and local officials accept their ruling as final. That legitimacy starts to get damaged when one of your justices, the longest serving one, is breaking every ethics norm uh, that justices have abided by for 200 some years. So I start. I think we start to see progress if we keep pushing and some of the jurisprudence starts to moderate itself. We'll also see progress if we start to pressure and show Democrats in Congress that we have their back if they are going to pursue an, an, an aggressive investigation of Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and the others for violating their oaths of office and for violating federal law, which requires them to disclose gifts. Democratic voters, independent voters, believe this court is corrupt and Senate Democrats should know that we have their back. We believe that they should be pursuing a, an aggressive investigation. They should be subpoenaing Clarence Thomas, Harlan Crow, the rest of these billionaires, they can subpoena the, the chief justice, make them explain what's going on in the court. Uh, and that opens the door for further reform. So I see this as incremental. A lot of these are going to be far off, but a lot of reforms take years and that's no reason to, to stop. This podcast started because people were feeling hopeless, uh, specifically about the Supreme Court. So I, I guess I want to ask, <laughs> it's not a simple question, but do you feel hopeful? Yeah, I do. Honestly, you know, cynicism is 
the greatest tool for those in power who don't want our country to change. On a smaller scale, let me let me just say two things. On a small scale, we came this close just last year to passing historic voting rights and democracy reforms. You remember that in 2022, the House passed a massive voting rights bill that would have instituted automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, ended partisan gerrymandering, limited big money in our politics. The House also passed D.C. statehood, things that would start to roll back the structural barriers to progress that have kept uh, a minoritarian government in power that doesn't reflect where the majority of the people really are. And we came within two votes in the Senate of eliminating the filibuster to pass that. That opportunity is going to come again. But just one year ago, we were on the cusp of truly historic voting rights and democracy reforms. That gives me hope. We'll be there again. There is a progress that is going in one way. Uh, not More people are not suddenly agreeing with Joe Manchin's position on the filibuster or Kirsten Cinema. It's, it's gone the other way. Things have gotten more worse. The Supreme Court has shown its true colors. People want more reform. Also, on a macro scale, every important battle that we've ever won in politics that seemed impossible in the beginning. Certainly, that's true of ending segregation or ensuring equal civil and political rights for Black Americans, women's suffrage. But even in our lifetimes, when I was a you know, a gay kid growing up in suburban central New York. I knew no, no gay people. I had no gay role models. To be gay was to accept that you would just be alone the rest of your life. It was a very dark time to, to be gay in America. You would never have family, no kids. But today, there's gay marriage. I, I, I am suddenly now in a marriage. I have a husband. I have a kid. And it's because Change happens when people keep fighting, and it also happens because we engage in debate with people who disagree with us. That gets lost sometimes. I know it's frustrating to talk to people who disagree with you, but we convinced people slowly, and in the course of a decade, we went from nobody believing in gay marriage to suddenly it is accepted by the vast majority of Americans, and we can live our lives openly. That gives me a tremendous amount of hope. You know, we showed people who we were. We ask them to join us in the fight. And that's happening on so many other issues. Uh, and it might take time, but you can't give up or nothing will change. Is there anything that you wish we'd asked you about or wanted to talk about before we close? There are actions for everyone who wants to get involved in the fight for our democracy, in the fight to reform our courts, no matter how much time you have to put in. You know, if you, to be a couch potato activist, great. Uh, we, we need your help. For those who have very little time, but you want to make an impact, uh, you can text on your phone the word STAND to 63033. I did it earlier today to get involved and call your lawmakers on specific issues that you care about. Use that commercial break while you're watching MSNBC to make a call. It makes a difference. There are democracy issues in blue states and red states uh, that need your help. And we're at, involved at Stand Up America, not just at the federal level, but in states across the country where voting rights, structural democracy reforms, campaign finance reform are all on the ballot or in the legislature, and we can use your help. If you have more opportunities and you go to standupamerica.com, there are opportunities to attend events in person, to write letters to your neighbors or to voters about upcoming elections. Uh, the recent Ohio issue one 
ballot initiative, we were sending text messages to Ohio voters, got over 1.4 million text messages to Ohio voters out, uh, most of those in the day before the election or on election day. You can join our texting team to help us do that. We were writing letters to Ohio voters. You can help us do that. Our model is really about giving people a lot of options to how to participate, whether you have five minutes a week or you have five hours a day. And I would also say, reach out to your local political organizations. There are indivisible chapters all across the country. There are local politicians who need help and support. Get involved. You know, reach out, Google to see if your state has a voting rights chapter or a voting rights coalition. They probably do, and they probably need your help. Brett, thank you so much. This has been a terrific conversation, and uh, I'm feeling hopeful now. I'm glad. <laughs> And we'll add all of the actions that you've talked about, Stand Up America's info, into the show notes so that people can easily get in touch after they've listened to this. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCanIDoPod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at WhatCanIDoPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. Justin.